We have the wonderful opportunity today to be speaking with Hannah Smith. Hannah is the director of Worderist, which is her company that offers consultancy, coaching, training, and support to help develop and grow creative production and PR teams, improve processes, and deliver results. With more than 15 years in the industry, her creative work has won multiple awards. She's worked with well-known companies ranging from the BBC, Dyson, Expedia, MailChimp, and Salesforce. Hannah has spoken at numerous conferences across Europe and the US. I recently saw her at MozCon 2022, and it was fantastic and inspired to have her um, inspired me to invite her onto the show today. Little side note, we'll get into that soon. Um, she also interviewed Google's John Mueller live on stage in front of an audience of 3,000. Oh my gosh, I'm sweating just thinking about that. And acted as a guest lecturer at the University of Greenwich, London. She also writes a newsletter called Manufacturing Serendipity, where she shares short essays and some of the unexpectedly delightful things she's encountered each fortnight. And I highly recommend subscribing to that. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And thank you so much (laughs) for having me. Yes, Jackie and I are so excited. Um, Also, another side note for our listeners, uh, Jackie and I work together, as most of you know, and Hannah and I worked together back in the day. So this is super, super, super exciting and almost full circle for me. Um, So that's nice. (laughs) Let's get to... um, why I was so inspired to invite you on today, Hannah. You recently published an article that was an excerpt from your 2022 MozCon talk, which was titled Myths, Misconceptions, and Mistakes, Lessons Learned from a Decade in Digital PR. Um, It definitely caught, well, that first and foremost, that uh, whole talk was just very inspirational and very different from what you traditionally see on a mos- I mean, on really any conference stage, and we'll get to that. Um, the article too is well worth the read if you haven't read it already. It caught Jackie's Jackie and I's attention, of course, and um, we'll link to that in the show notes. But first, Hannah, could you summarize the piece for our listeners in your own words? Yeah, sure. So. Um, The piece is called Benchmarking the Performance of Over 2,000 Digital PR Pieces. Um, And it really came about because over the past three years, I've worked with lots of digital PR people across a number of agencies and in-house teams. And there was one question that just kept coming up over and over and over again. And it kind of goes like this. My last piece generated no linked coverage at all. Am I terrible at this? Um, it, it, which is a, it's, it makes me so sad when people ask me it and obviously my answer would always be unequivocally no you're not terrible at this this is something that everyone experiences and also it happens far more often than you think um, the problem is I think that um, as an industry we have a tendency to kind of share our best work widely right so we have a very successful piece and we take to twitter and we tell everyone about it and we write our case studies about these very successful pieces and that kind of skews reality for people right because they feel that all they see out there are pieces which have got hundreds of um bits of linked coverage and then they're sat there at their office desk feeling kind of dejected because the piece they just launched got nothing at all, right? Um, right. And so as, as much as I, I was like, oh, this is so broken, I desperately want to fix this, as much as I wanted to fix it, um, I only had my own data to fall back on. So I'd worked, um, I've worked at various agencies um, and uh, most recently I worked at an agency called Verve Search. I was head of creative there. And I had all the data from the work that I'd done there. And that was like data on, you know, several hundred uh, digital PR pieces. And so like I had benchmarks from that. Um, and I was like, this is probably reasonably robust and likely to be representative. But I wasn't sure, like I couldn't be sure if it was just me, right? And I was really keen to gather more. So like, so basically my plan for my MozCon talk, or at least a, a key part of it, was to go to all the people that I'd worked with over the years and persuade them to share their data with me. 
so um and and people did I still think it's unbelievable that people did people were unbelievably um trusting of me and unbelievably generous they shared their data with me which I aggregated and anonymized obviously um and I used that to create what I hope are more realistic benchmarks of how well or otherwise digital PR pieces actually perform just just to try and give people like one a bit of comfort but also like some more realistic expectations of how this stuff actually works. So that was really why I did uh, what I did. It is really cool that. that so many people gave you your data or their data. Cause yeah. And did you find that, were you surprised um, to see how many folks shared maybe some losses with you? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I feel like that's really hard for really a lot hard. of us. It's really, really hard. And obviously, um, I needed them to share the losses as well, right? They couldn't just share their best stuff with me. I needed the, all the data. <laughs> I, needed, mm-hmm. I needed to know about all of those digital PR pieces that they'd launched, including the ones which got no coverage at all. Um, and, and obviously, like I had to be very clear about that because obviously if people weren't willing to give me all of the data, then um, obviously I would understand and respect that, but I couldn't include any of their data in my data set, right? Because it would just be, uh, it, it would just mess it up all over again. It would be skewed all over again. So yeah, I was, I was so, so um, impressed and, and honestly just so grateful that people did share their data with me. I mean, I think part of the reason that they did though is because this is something they wanted to, you know, we only ever have access to our own data. Um, and and we, we don't know how, how we sit versus, you know, other teams who are doing similar stuff to us. I mean, certainly one of the things that, um, I found interesting Obviously, there were variances in the data from from team to team, but actually they weren't that wild. Most people are performing at about the same level. And and I thought that that was um, like both really interesting and also really comforting to like it was it was definitely I'm not going to lie. Personally, it was comforting to me to see that, you know, I wasn't the only one (laughs) who failed at Mm -hmm. this. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, well, let's get into the kind of technical details. Ooh. When you were collecting this data, you separated the data sets between asset-led pieces and Ooh. those without assets. Uh, can you explain why you did this? We might have some listeners who aren't necessarily in this realm of digital PR. Yeah. So the differences, explaining yeah. the differences. What on earth here. do I mean by this? Yeah, because it, it <laughs> sounds a bit like, what is this? You've just made up some terms. Um, so for clarity, um, I have determined that a piece, an asset-led piece is really any digital PR piece where there's something on the client's website. So that thing on the client's website, it might be as simple as a blog post or it might be like a very expensive, fully interactive piece. Anything where there is an asset online that a journalist could link to, that is an asset-led piece. Um, and a, a, a PR piece without an asset is really um, anything where essentially just a press release was created. And I might also add that press release isn't online anywhere either. So it's like it's there's there's literally nothing that exists online in reference to this thing. Um, there's no digital footprint at all. Um, and there's nothing live on the client site which relates to the piece. And the reason that I wanted to split those two things out was because I felt that um, those things, one, they perform very differently and, and quite rightly so. We would expect them to perform differently because the amount of time and resource and the way in which they're created is very different. And so I thought I felt strongly it was important to separate those things out because again, we'd wind up with a skewed data set if we didn't, it would skew the data again. So um, I guess like, for example, uh, lots of the pieces without assets uh, were probably reactive activity. Um, What do we mean by reactive, right? Um, We mean something which uh, PR person or team 
will create quickly in response to something that's happening in the news cycle right now. Um, and when we create stuff like that, we necessarily trade some rigor for speed, right? We're aiming to get something out quickly to capitalize on whatever's going on in the news cycle right this second now. Um, uh, and we have to trade rigor for speed because if we're too slow, either someone else will be as to it or the news cycle itself will just have moved on. Um, and so part of the, the division between asset-led and um, pieces without assets was to try and acknowledge that. Like a lot of um, the reactive stuff we do fails, right? <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> because we're just moving really, really fast. And it's we, a gamble. Yeah. An even bigger hope, gamble. Yeah. And we just hope that we get it out quickly enough. <laughs> Ultimately, mm-hmm. we just hope that we get it out quickly enough and it lands with a couple of journalists and they're like, oh, yes, thank you. This is a thing that I want in my life. Um, uh, and I really wanted to differentiate between between the two types of activity, because I like I, I had felt strongly that we should expect much higher failure rates for that sort of activity. Like it, it, it kind of just makes sense to me. Of course, those things aren't always going to land. Um, because we're we're focused on speed, not necessarily creating the most um, rigorous or resource-heavy thing, right? Does that make sense? That makes complete sense to me. Um, And also piqued my curiosity because I was curious to know if anyone, if that, if any other examples fell under that category that I didn't think about beyond reactive commentary um, so that clarifies it in my mind. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably worth saying that not all of the pieces without assets were reactive, right? I, I can't know that for sure. Um, I suspect a bunch of them were, um, mm-hmm. and, and some of the agencies that, um, were kind enough to share their data with me, like I'm more exposed to their work than others. Like some agencies who I've never worked with shared their data with me. How unbelievable is that? That's wow. so unbelievable to me. That's um, great. So, so I have, you know, it's fair to say I have somewhat less clarity over that. But what I was really clear um, or, or what I tried to be really clear to do, like when I was briefing people was to explain, like, here's how I need the data split up. Um, and I did say, you know, like that might be your reactive stuff, but it might also be some stuff that you've done, which is not strictly reactive but just doesn't have an asset, something you've launched without an asset. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. I know that was one of the first questions that I had. Makes total sense in my mind. Um, So now, did you see any – was there any wild – I hate to use the word differences again, but was there any wild differences between the data of those two different assets – or not assets, two different um, data sets? Categories. Yeah. Categories. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. So um, in terms of the results um, from this, from the data set that I have. Right. So I had um, uh, close to 1400 asset led digital PR pieces. Um, and of those 5% got no pieces of linked coverage at all. Conversely, of the digital PR pieces without assets, 31% got no linked coverage at all. So we're seeing like a much, much, much higher failure rate there. Mm-hmm. And, and I was expecting a higher failure rate for sure. Um, I was kind of surprised to see it was that um, degree of magnitude higher. Um, but I think it speaks to the sorts of activity that, that people are undertaking there, right? Like it's not necessarily a bad thing that um, these campaigns without assets uh, get no pieces of linked coverage, right? It, we should expect that. Yeah. I think I think it's healthy for us to expect that. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, when you're like, is it a feature or a bug? I think it's a feature <laughs> of this type of activity, right? I don't think that you can solve for it. And I don't think that there's an awful lot of merit in trying to solve for that. Um, a bunch of people ask me stuff like, you know, should we, should we just should we just do one thing or the other, right? Like, so should we just do stuff which is asset-led or should we just do stuff without assets? And, you know, my answer was like, if at all possible, like do both, right? There's space for both. And I think it's sensible to do both. 
Um, something I think maybe people don't really talk about quite so much is like is the nature of doing reactive stuff kind of more generally like it's not going to be right for every client you know so um I, I feel like and we see this a lot right in this industry everything goes through phases like there's always a new shiny thing and and whilst reactive PR activity um is not a new shiny thing right it's just news jacking. We've done news jacking for years. News jacking existed before we did as digital PRs. Like it was a thing forever. Um, <clears throat> we're now calling it reactive and we're holding it up as this shiny new thing. And I think that whilst that sort of activity can definitely be beneficial um, and, and can be a great thing to do for certain types of companies, for others, like it's just not going to work. So like if you're very heavily regulated and every client quote's got to be cleared by legal, like you're not going to be able to do any reactive activity or you're going to struggle. Right. <laughs> so um, I do think yeah, exactly. I do think it's kind of like we need to be mindful, I, I think, of, um, you know, like some of the blanket statements we have a tendency as an industry to kind of chuck out there like I'm a big fan of doing reactive stuff if, if you're set up in a way that you can make it work for you but you know equally like it, it, it can just be a huge headache and not yield much in the way of return so I think it, it you know it really depends on the industry you're in really depends on you know like your your relationship with the client if you're working as like an agency or a freelancer or your mm -hmm. own internal relationships, right? If you're working as part of an internal team, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it may or may not work for you. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of doing both sorts of things. What do you think? What do you think about the noise around reactive and news jacking stuff? Well, I think mm. that content without assets are presumably less expensive if you're, and that depends too, probably if you're a sole PR consultants or if you're working with a larger agency and because of this it gives you an incentive to take the risk mm -hmm. um you know I think I could do more of this and the most exciting part of me going out on my own um when I started my own consulting firm after being at Distilled was the ability to take these risks more often because it was always so hard to think of a way to package that kind of um, that kind of offering or service to our clients. Yes. Because as you totally were saying, Hannah, you have to make sure you have an a like a very good, solid working relationship with that client. Um, you can't necessarily go up against all that red tape that maybe some of the larger brands that we were working with had to go through. Like there were campaigns that I remember we even created big flashy ones that didn't even get published because ultimately legal would um, deny them and not allow them to publish it. <clears throat> and that we had a, we had jokes, mind. didn't we, about our best work sitting on test servers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and could you imagine if we tried to get like some reactive commentary um, approved <laughs> for those clients? It wouldn't happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I find it. Personally, in my own experience, if I have, if I'm representing somebody, for example, who is an expert in the industry, has the credentials to back it up, and also has the ability to be on the call or be on standby for any interviews that come our way, um, to help me craft that commentary, of course, too, I can get a, you know, provide a draft. But it's always helpful to have their final approval and any additions that they want to add from their you know, expertise. Um, but yeah, it's all about that relationship and also what that person has to offer. And I find it works best with somebody who's their own entity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I would strongly agree with that. Jacqueline, what do you think? Yeah, I, my sentiments echo yours. I've had best, the best success is well, that's kind of my advantage as a sole entre entrepreneur. That's not the word I wanted to use. As a sole practitioner, um, especially working with smaller teams, um, I got to work with an in-house team over at a publishing company, for instance, and they had an in-house expert and we were able, all the campaigns I did with them had no assets. We basically 
around shopping seasons um, would come up with what is the new story basically for that season? What are the talking points my expert can talk about? And then I would go out and pitch. They actually didn't have the resources, nor did they want to create these big like content marketing pieces. So I think for their brand, it made a lot of sense because part of their whole initiative, not beyond link building, was ensuring that their journalists looked like experts to media, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but then on the flip side, working with my main client that I work with usually, we find the best success with these asset-based pieces and, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of goes along with this idea that when you have more leverage, there's also more people to reach out to, more of a concrete thing to pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, Hannah, like when we do go the route of content marketing, it can be an investment. So one of the ways we kind of pad it, so to speak, to see if maybe we can squeeze as much juice we can out of it is looking at what are the sub angles within that content piece. And then can we look at how can we add more? So is there a geographical angle we can add into it? So, you know, there's ways to, I think, like, even if it's expensive to add onto it. And then thirdly, I can't remember last time I worked with a corporate client, but I did work with um, a sporting goods store one time. Uh, this was back in blue glass days, and uh, it was the same story. We couldn't get anything approved, um, and it was quite a nightmare. Uh, I won't name the name of the store, but they were. It was like one of those things, and so in that case, it's like I don't know. Like there are certain companies where I don't know how anyone gets any sort of thing done there, <laughs> whether it be asset based or uh, working with an expert. But yeah, I mean. I I do want to say I thought it was pretty brilliant to separate those two um, content um, categories. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Well, it just shows that you've been in the weeds and you understand how it works. Because um, oftentimes, I'm sure you've seen it too, you get an exec who might not have any idea how you do your job. And they just simply look at it from an umbrella standpoint of, oh, yes, content marketing. You create X, Y, Z. And then it should produce this. If we produce X campaigns, we'll get Y links. And it's like, well, that's, you're not, there's no quality, there's no qualitative metric there. Like, how can you predict that? Anyway, that was, thank you for letting me rant. That felt good. No, I'm with (laughs) you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I also, I feel like, um, like, I don't want to, I might be bad mouthing. Just for clarity, I'm not bad mouthing HubSpot or anyone at HubSpot, but (laughs) like, <laughs> noted we, we have a hubspot problem in our industry right like people look at like hubspot content yeah. and go like look at all the links this got and you know when you're like are you okay are mm-hmm. you actually okay you're yeah. talking about um you know a, a study from hubspot right hubspot are in like what is perhaps is linkiest uh, a, a, an accurate descriptor? Perhaps the most linkiest industry in the world. Like the marketing yes. industry. <laughs> we're like, we're so linky. We love it. Like we see a thing, we link to it. We're like, linky, yeah. linky, linky. We gotta share right. it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know when you're like, are you okay? Like, yes, the, I'm not saying the work's not good. Of course the work's good. But like, you can't make a Hubsto- HubSpot style guide for something like coaxical cables and expect it to get links at the same rate as like your husband, exactly. right? Like th- these things are not, these things are not equivalent niches, but I do think like that there's definitely, there's, there's definitely a challenge. I, I think in terms of like people understanding that, you know, that like what works in one niche won't necessarily work in another um, you know, and, and, you know, the HubSpot stuff, like as great as it is, like it doesn't get much in the way of links from journalists. Right. So if you, if what you, you right. know, like if, you, if your aim was not just to get links in inverted commas, cause I don't even know what that means, but like if what you wanted was like coverage from high tier press, like the HubSpot model doesn't make sense. The HubSpot model makes perfect sense for HubSpot, <laughs> but it might not make perfect yeah sense for you as like a, a you know like a b2b sorry a b2c company like trying to shift some fashion like it might not be the thing for you to do so yeah I'm with you I'm with I you love today. that I, I like the, the what title. you just said though yeah what what is the cable guide so linky <laughs> <laughs> no I'm totally joking 
I just love that. <laughs> Go ahead, Jackie. <laughs> With the HubSpot, their marketing works for them because it's made for HubSpot. I think that's kind of the dream is for each brand to find whatever their version of that is. Um, But unfortunately, you know, it might not always be possible depending on leadership, industry, who your competitors are. Maybe your competitors got like they figured it out first and now you're like, uh trying to imitate them but you don't want to I mean it's not easy but that would be the dream wouldn't it (laughs) well that's like a really good segue maybe into how to best set expectations with clients or our boss's leadership um and Hannah do you want to share any advice on that (laughs) I mean like I'm I'm taking a hard right we can skip over that question no, no 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 I'm giggling only because, like, I wish I had a better answer for you, honestly, right? <laughs> like, honestly, I wish I did. Um, my advice would always be to be as transparent as possible, right? So if it's all possible, show um, uh, your own historic performance data, which is relevant to that client. If, for example, I was working with... Um, like somebody who worked in the travel space, do you know what I mean? Like they're a, they're an online travel agent, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like I would probably show them some of the old work that I did for Expedia and the, the results that that got. Like the good and the bad, not just the good stuff, the stuff that didn't work too, so that they could get an appreciation for one, oh, right, this is what this looks like. This is what we might expect in terms of like results. Like some campaigns are hits, some are misses. Like, you know, like this is what this thing's probably going to look like. Um, Obviously, um, if you can't share your own data, like because you don't have it, um, obviously, I'd encourage you to share mine. (laughs) Like if if you want to share my benchmarks, like that is what they're there for. If you feel like that might be, you know, in the absence of anything else, right, that might be a reasonable benchmark for you to show. But just so that people, um, the people that you're going to be working with, have as as a realistic idea as possible of, of what's likely right and because ultimately this is about trying to set I think realistic KPIs there's nothing worse than kind of over promising and under delivering um it, you know like y- 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 you just lose right <laughs> you just lose mm-hmm. and I think also you know like sometimes uh you know Brett and I were talking a little bit about this just before we hit record like Sometimes it's better to walk away, you know. I have had situations where I've been unable to convince another person that the KPIs that they want to set are unrealistic. And so I've taken the decision just not to work with them. Do you know what I mean? With love, just gone like, (laughs) hey, you know what? It's been great, but I don't think that we're going to be a great fit for each other. I wish you all the best. And I walk away. Um, because that, that relationship's never going to end well anyway, right? <laughs> um, right? With the best will in the world. Now, of course, just walking away, if this is your boss, is possibly like <laughs> not, not great advice. Do you know what I mean? Like you won't always just be able to walk away and I don't want to, you know, make light of that, you know, and similarly, if you work for an agency, right, or you freelance, like y- you need to, you need to get a certain number of clients, otherwise you don't get to eat, right? Like that, that's a real problem. Um, but like, as, as I say, as far as possible, I think that, that the route to, to better understanding and better relationships with clients is to be that transparent, even when it hurts. Right. And, and also even when it means, you know, it may mean in some situations that like you've been very transparent and honest, but you know, some other people who are, who are going up against you for this work have not, and they win the work and you don't, and that's hard. Like, I don't want to diminish how hard that is, but you know. I honestly think it's like it's the own it's the only way to help people understand this stuff really. Mm-hmm. Honesty is the best policy. Mm. Yeah, my nan is right. <laughs> she used to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I th- there's an, an important excerpt from your article, um, and that's rather than focusing on the results of individual pieces, individual pieces, much like technical SEO teams, 
we should be assessing the results we generate over a number of pieces or a program of activity. Mm. Um, I think it's a good point to bring this up because, of course, our listeners are going to be like, okay, what kind of metrics should I be measuring and how Mm. to make sure that we're um, at least working our way towards success? So can you provide an example of how you first determine how many number of campaigns to measure and also what metrics you measure to determine the sex success wow, yeah. of the pieces combined? Yeah. So, um, I mean, like to your first question, like how many pieces of coverage, <laughs> like as many as possible, as many as they're willing to sign up for. Like I say that only half jokingly, right? When, when I was at Verve, we used to have like a minimum engagement of, I think I'm right in saying a minimum engagement of three pieces, three asset led pieces. So if anybody wanted, like came to us and they were like, will you just do one piece? Like the answer was normally no. There were some exceptions, but but for the most part, the answer was no. And the, the reason for that was kind of twofold. Like one, just doing one piece is very, very risky. It might hit, it might not, right? So that's problematic, you know, from the outset. But also, even if you have one very, very successful piece, in my experience, it doesn't, it doesn't deliver anything meaningful to the bottom line of the business, right? One successful piece is never enough to, um, to, to in, in any meaningful way, like improve organic rankings um, or like therefore improve revenue right? It's very, very rare that one piece is enough. Now, it's conceivable that it might be in some instances, but even even the most successful pieces I worked on, you know, the pieces that generated thousands of links. Do you remember back when we used to do pieces that generated thousands of links? It was because oh, yeah. it was a different place. I mean, most of those links were trash, right? Like, <laughs> of the 3,000 <laughs> links, like... We did that, not care. They know, were a link. It was a big, <laughs> big number, and we love big numbers, right? Yeah. But like, but still, e- even those, you know, wildly successful pieces, which were outliers, do you know what I mean? Huge yeah. outliers, even they didn't drive any meaningful business results <laughs> from from the one piece. So, um, so yeah, so I, I kind of, you know, at Verve, we used to kind of say minimum three, but like wherever possible, we were trying to sign people up for um, a year. Um, and I think that I honestly think that we need to be thinking in those terms. And I think we need to be thinking in those terms for a couple of reasons. Um, One, because what we do isn't in a vacuum, right? You could be doing brilliant work, like really, really brilliant work for your client. But if your client's competitors are doing equally brilliant work but more of it and are therefore generating linked coverage to a higher velocity than you your brilliant work doesn't matter right because you're Mm -hmm. still just running to keep up like none of these things are done in a vacuum and I think like you know I've, I've I've had a bit of a like a bit of a bugbear for a long time actually about about kind of the way that we approach digital PR like we don't I feel like we don't talk much about like monitoring competitor activity because the truth of the matter is is like we know that there's there's some sort of slightly hazy relationship between uh getting good linked coverage on high tiered sites tends in our experience to drive improvements in organic rankings but if you're you know if if, if the velocity that you're able to generate that linked coverage is slower than your competitors. It, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Like you're still only just going to be standing still. You may even be going backwards if your competitors are going much faster than you. But, I, you know, like I don't feel like we talk much about, you know, do you know where you're at? Like, do you know where you're at in terms of like, you know, your competitor activity? Is the reason that your work is not appearing to have much of an impact is that is that because you're not generating much linked coverage or is it just because you're, you're you're generating less linked coverage than your competitor who's spending way more in this area 
Um, and so, so yeah, so I guess like in terms of metrics, this is a really long winded answer, isn't it? And probably not very helpful in terms of metrics, you can't get away from number of pieces of linked coverage. So like, don't even try, right? <laughs> just, just swallow it, <laughs> just swallow it. It's fine. And actually like, I don't mind it because like as a digital PR, like that's the one thing I can control right to a greater or mm-hmm. lesser extent I can actually control that to some extent I can't control your organic rankings I wish I could but you know oh I, don't, I don't have that You're magic dreaming. wand right um <clears throat> so um don't you know I accept number of pieces of link coverage I prefer it when there's a proper consideration of quality in there too so like um certainly I mean it's not like necessarily like a solid KPI but um, I always kind of liked to hear, um, you know, specific publications and kind of have those as a target too. So do you know what I mean? Like if, if you want coverage in the Wall Street Journal, like I kind of want to know that and I try and I want to try and get that for you. Um, I, I, but I need to know what those publications are. Right. Otherwise, I'll be chasing right. the wrong publications. Um, like as a side note, it's it was something I always liked to ask or to try and find out about, you know, whoever's signing your checks, <laughs> trying to find out like which publications they came, care most about. Like mm-hmm. that's that's something which I think, again, sometimes we don't do. I'm thinking specifically, I don't know if you remember this, Britt, like back when we were at Distilled, um, I don't know if you remember this, we did this piece for Simply Business and it went on Lifehacker. And mm-hmm. um, the CEO of Simply Business at the time, uh, he was a guy called Jason, and he was like so excited that they were on Lifehacker that like he did this like they were doing like a company all hands. They used to do this company all hands like every Friday for like 10 minutes. The whole office would kind of stand up and do this. I don't know this thing. Um, he mentioned it like in the company all hands meeting as like this glorious thing. And I remember yeah. just being like, oh, my God, why didn't I know this sooner? Like, you know, yeah. you're like, IFAC is not even hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could have got that way sooner. Like, if I'd have known that, I would have made <laughs> different things. Like, I'd have got that for him in, like, the second month, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and so ever since then, like, ever since that experience, I've just been like, <laughs> find out, find out, like, find out you know whoever signs the checks whoever it's important that we we're impressing like find mm-hmm. out find out the the publication that they they care most about and let's try and make a thing to make that happen right because most yeah. of the time you can like most of the time it's actually I love you know, that idea yeah it's not outside the realms of possibility so yeah so I love in, in, in my wor- ideal worlds right I love a long engagement with many pieces um I like um, to look at both uh, number of pieces of link coverage and the quality and also to be measuring that versus the competition right so that we're getting right. like an additional um, kind of sanity check um, and then of course of course of course of course I want to be looking at things like um, or improvements in organic ranking and also money right revenue because actually businesses don't even care about organic rankings like we think they do but they don't they care about money so money eventually (laughs) yeah I have a very technical specific question when it comes to reporting maybe and I'm really curious to hear Jackie your thoughts too on this because I'm trying to figure out how to measure it so okay this is an example Um, A journalist on CNBC has written about your study, this placement or this campaign that you've, you know, published. Mm -hmm. Then there's those syndication articles that are just the same exact article, but on very authoritative outlets, you know, like NBC Miami usually syndicates from CNBC, NBC Chicago, and... You know, it's a followed – I'm going to really get specific here. Yeah. All of those syndication articles have, ew, I know, followed links. and Or even if they had no followed, I don't really – I don't like to – I feel like they're both just as valuable. So I don't like to get – I just count um, everything. Yeah, I count both of those. But do you count those syndication links as additional pieces of coverage or do you say like they're half the worth of <laughs> – 
the original article placement? Yeah. Um, I can try an answer for you. Um, I, I guess like... Oh, I think there isn't an answer, by the way. I think we all have our different opinions, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess, I think, so part of the problem is, is that it's all guesswork, right? It's all guesswork because we don't really understand how Google might handle any of this, right? Mm-hmm. So here's my thinking so on it. Here's my thinking on it. So um, uh, new syndications, right? Do they have a canonical tag on them? So are those syndications canonicaling back to the original on CNBC? Ooh, that's a good question. It I may believe... not matter. It may not matter, mm-hmm. but it's like, let's just say they do, right? Let's just say they do. If they've got um, a canonical tag on them, um, on paper, <laughs> and I'm giggling because on paper, this is just so hilarious. Google don't even know what Google does, right? It's a yeah. black box at this point. But my understanding is that on paper, um, Google like don't recognize them as separate entities, essentially. They recognize them uh, effectively as duplicate content. So mm-hmm. um, whilst those, what's get, what, where it gets messy is like <laughs> those pages do exist. right um they may or may not be indexed by google right so they you know you may be able to find them via google or you may not um we don't really know if they've been crawled or not (laughs) so we don't really know how kind of google are handling them at all Mm -hmm. right but at the same time like those pages do exist in the real world And a human being could read them and a human being could click that. That is my (laughs) counter-argument to the SEO speed. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And so like, so honestly, I think there's kind of, there's two separate things kind of going on simultaneously, right? Like how did Google handle that stuff? Honestly, like I'm not clever enough to tell you that. Um, And I'm also like, I'm also not sure that um, uh, even anyone at Google could, could, could tell you that for sure. Because, of course, like, there's a couple of things we do know, right? Like, if, if Google is not even crawling those pages, like, then Google don't know those pages exist. So if those pages have never been crawled, then they don't exist and they're not, they're not helping your client rank in any meaningful way because they don't exist to Google. Um, <clears throat> another question is, though, is, like, do they need to be indexed in order for those links to count? Let's just assume that Google do crawl those pages. If they crawl them but choose not to index them, which in some instances they don't, do those links still count? Well, we still don't know, right? Because we don't really know how the linking part of the algorithm works. Like, So is there a bit in there that says, like, this link only counts if this page is indexed? We don't know. <laughs> We don't know. We just don't know. It's too big. It's too scary. Oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, they're still like they're still good for humans, right? Or, or yeah, hopefully good for humans. Increases the number of eyeballs yeah. on that particular article. Exactly. So yeah. very long-winded way of saying like um, I I I think like I personally count them. So like historically, I've always reported on syndications because I think mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a legit thing to report on. Um, the extent to which they might count from an SEO perspective. So, and what do we mean by that? We mean the extent to which they may contribute to uh, ranking benefits, to organic ranking benefits. We can't know for sure. Um, our, um, our slightly messy solution uh, at, at Verb Search was essentially, so we used to um, kind of give every piece of coverage a link score. The link score was kind of honestly like mainly based on the authority of the site. Um, it used as I think it, I think it used to use Majestic. So whatever what what is Majestic? Is it like do they I forget what they call it? Trust flow or citation flow? Oh, yeah, One of those. both. They have yeah TFCF trust flow. <laughs> citation flow it used one of those which was a number between zero and a hundred so it used one of those and we used to do some like maths magic and you know kind of give it a score right and the (laughs) way that we used to score syndications was your original piece so in your instance Brit like your original piece on CNBC that gets the full score the full possible score um and any subsequent syndications are scored at 10 percent so because our, our belief was those things are probably somewhat beneficial 
but we're not sure how beneficial they might be. So we score them at 10%. It's all very arbitrary. <laughs> like very, yeah. very arbitrary. Um, I was definitely not looking for answers to this question. It's just, I think it's important for like, not all of us to even be on the same page, but everybody to share their thoughts. Yeah. I agree um, with your thoughts completely, Hannah. And thank you for letting me pick your brain about how you feel about that too. Um, <laughs> I have feelings about it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they amount to anything much more than feelings. But yeah, I do think this stuff is fascinating though and how different people handle it. Um, right. And I do feel like sometimes the reason why some maybe – some people who aren't in PR might not count syndication articles is because they feel like if a PR person gets that win, they stop trying. And that's not the case, at least in my experience. Yeah, that really upsets me when I hear stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, when you're like, my goodness, do you walk through life with that attitude all the time? Yeah. Like, do right. you really think that? Like, I, yeah, it upsets me, that stuff. Because... and. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Who, who'd want to <laughs> live like that? Who'd want to live believing that essentially people are lazy and kind of bad? <laughs> like, right. Right. Yeah, I'd like to think fun. we're all at least semi-passionate about what we do. We've been doing it for so long. Well, and also, like, it's just not my experience. Like, I mean, if anything, like, my experience of working with digital PR people is, like, I mean, I spend a lot of time trying to persuade people to um, try and um you know separate their identity from their work do you know what I mean mm -hmm. I feel like I spend a lot of time pe with people kind of going like do you Absolutely. know what like you are not your work like yeah. your value is not your work like you are brilliant like you are brilliant and interesting and uh fascinating thank and, you uh, you have so much to offer like the world in every direction like you are not your work like you do a thing and it doesn't work out that doesn't mean you failed it means like mm -hmm. you did a thing which didn't work out right and mm -hmm. um, so yeah I yeah it drives me mad when people feel like that I'm just like <sighs> right and also just to put it out there that link on CNBC or that placement whatever website it might be it's not only the CNBCs but that is that's a high bar I mean it's hard to get that coverage that feature and it should be worth more but anyways oh yeah. and rants on my and end rants, yeah. no, but I'm with you I'm with you I'm with you because oh, actually, oh, maybe I'll just say this. You can take it out if you don't want to take it out if it gets all technical and weird. But like, <laughs> um, so uh, one thing which I feel like a lot of people forget is um, uh, all of those uh, metrics from the various tool sets out there, um, they all came to be logarithmic um, uh, as opposed to linear. So what that means is, let's just say uh, you get a link on a site which has a citation flow of 40. Um, that link on a site with a citation flow of 40 is not twice as good as a link from a site with a citation flow of 20. Um, that's not twice right. as good because it's not a linear scale. Now, for clarity, it's not a truly algorithmic scale, right? Because you don't have an algorithmic scale that goes from zero to 100, right? Those numbers are way too big. Probably what it is, is it's, it's like it's a, it's a logarithmic scale from like one to 10. But still, like we're talking orders of magnitude bigger. And none of the link score metrics that anybody has created have really um, actually credited anything like that they're still on these weirdly linear scales so yes your cnbc link is absolutely incredible work in every direction and it's much 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 more valuable than i think people really recognize in any direction because they still think linear like not logarithmic mm -hmm. i wish i knew more about maths and i could explain that better take that out if you want that might be weird <laughs> <laughs> No, I love this. And yeah, that that was, I think I was just texting Jackie. This has been like the most in the weeds episode we've had on reporting. And I think listeners are going to find a lot of value out of that. Cool. Or if anything, they're going to find some, I don't know, like kind of the po point of this whole episode is to align on other ways to measure our worth and our value beyond number of links. Yeah. So yeah. there we go. Open your mind. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, we are reaching, I haven't even looked at the time, but let's see, 53 minutes in. Um, I think we're going to have to have you back on, Hannah, at some point, because I think there's a lot more you could speak to and we could talk about in regards to um, what you were saying on how you're not, your your worth and your value is not measured by the number of links you've built mm. in your career and all of that good stuff. I think that's worth talking about I would in and of itself. I would love to talk about yes, that. Yes, please. I would love to talk about that again. Yeah. For now, I think we should end it here because I think there's a lot for um, us and listeners to stew upon and think about as far as reporting goes. Thank you so much for um, sharing all of that and being so candid and open and vulnerable as well. Um, but we do want to also end um, with a shout out. Yes. If you have any, uh, just to end with all the feels. <laughs> all the good feels. Um, I love- After talking about that math, gosh. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't even know why I'm talking about math. I have no qualifications in math whatsoever. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, I would love to give a shout out to um, my wonderful friend, Serena. Um, on Twitter, she is Serena Chande. Um, I'll send you the, the Twitter link. Um, she's worked as both a PR and a journalist. And I first worked with her at Verve Search when she was on my PR team. Um, she is like, she's just honestly, she's a person that I feel very lucky to have in my life. Um, but she she provides invaluable insight, I think, from, from both sides, right? So she gets how journalists work, how journalists think. She understands the pressure they're under. Um, uh, and she also understands the PR stuff because she used to do that too. Um, and like, I definitely owe her, uh, so much in terms of like her input into my presentation at MozCon was like absolute gold. Like she, she gave me like so many great insights and we had so many great chats about it. So, um, I would love to give her a shout out and for everyone to go follow her on Twitter and go say hi. She's brilliant. Yeah, we'll definitely let her know and link to her Twitter profile and all that good stuff. Thank you so much. I love that. Also, we might need yeah. to have her on if she has that journalism background you as well. We should. love talking to folks. You would have- love her. You would love yeah. her. She's, she's absolutely amazing. Very cool. That was a very nice shout out. Thank you for yeah. coming on, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. I've really, really, really enjoyed this so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Earn Media. If you head over to weearnmedia.com, you'll find a summary of the episode along with links to any of the resources and more information about our lovely guest and where you can find them online. If you have any topic suggestions or just general PR questions for us or future guests, email us at podcast at weearnmedia.com. Of course, you can also find us on social media. Our handle is at weearnmedia and we're on Twitter and Instagram. 